Verse 43 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Together, 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans also. Together, verse 48, let's finish out strong. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Again, the title of the sermon this morning, Christ loved his enemies. Christ loved his foes. Let's pray. Lord, maybe the most challenging commandment you've given us in Scripture is to love someone who is just so animus our direction, so unkind, someone who has become an enemy. And Lord, um, you've commanded Christians to do this, and you've commanded it very firmly and strongly. Lord, thank you for not only commanding us to do it, but demonstrating for us how to do it. Lord, help us today to be challenged by what we hear. Help us, Lord, to leave here determined to love everyone you've put in our life, even the most difficult. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, there's a story from the American Revolution era about a Baptist pastor who lived in a small town in Pennsylvania. The pastor's name was Pastor Peter Miller. Pastor Miller. And uh, he enjoyed the friendship of General George Washington. Well, in the same little town of Pennsylvania, there lived a scorner. They lived a man who was hard to get along with. And his name um, was Michael Whitman. So you have Pastor Miller and you have Michael Whitman. Okay, Um, Michael Whitman was evil-minded. And he did everything he could to oppose and humiliate the pastor. So you follow the story so far. Pastor Miller loves God. He's a Baptist pastor. Um, He's doing his very best to to lead a congregation during a time of upheaval and war in the country. And then you have Mr. Whitman, who's just a scorner. He's a thorn in the side of of the pastor. And uh, he's hard to get along with. He goes about undermining the pastor, humiliating the pastor. Well, one day, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason. He was found guilty, and 70 miles away in the city of Philadelphia, he was to be hung. Pastor Miller took the trip to Philadelphia for the hanging of Mr. Whitman, his bitter enemy. And he's standing up there on the gallows, his head's in the noose, they're getting ready to push him off the ledge. Pastor Miller yells out to General Washington, Don't do it. I am here to help. Ask for his pardon. And George Washington said, he said, No, Peter, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. He is a traitor. (laughs) Pastor Pastor Whitman yelled out, My friend... (laughs) He's the bitterest enemy that I have. 
General Washington said, well, that changes everything. He said, you walk 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? He said, that puts this in a whole different light. I will grant you his pardon. Peter Miller and Michael Whitman walked home to that small town in Pennsylvania. They walked the 70 miles together, no longer enemies but friends. You know, it seems that, like that the longer I'm alive, the longer I'm around, the more enemies I tend to develop. How many of you understand what I'm saying this morning? The older you get, the more enemies you seem to have. The rest of you guys, you just don't have any enemies. Amen? Let's try that again. How many of you would say the longer that you're alive, work with me here now, the longer that you're alive, the more enemies you seem to develop. That's you. Would you hold up your hand for me? All right, the rest of you don't have any enemies, but bless God. And you know what I found is that the older I get, the more enemies I have. I am scared to death to become an old man. I'm going to have so many enemies by the time I'm an old man. Um, there was a reporter who was interviewing a man uh, for uh, the local newspaper who had turned 100 years old. And um, he was asked by the newspaper reporter, what are you most proud of? And the guy was a little bit of a jokester. He got a big smile, like a Cheshire grin on his face. And he said, well, I think the thing I'm most impressed with is I don't have an enemy in the world. And the reporter said, wow, you're 100 years old and you don't have a single enemy in the world? And he laughed and he said, well, I guess I've just outlived every one of them. (laughs) Every enemy died. He was too stubborn to go. How is it that we go about getting enemies? You know, sometimes we have enemies and it's our fault, right? We did something that was just so hurtful to someone and they just don't like us. You ever had an enemy and thought, yep, I understand why they don't like me, okay? I have some along life's path that are that way. Sometimes it's not your fault, it is their fault, They're impossible to get along with. Romans tells us, as as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. Have you ever had someone in your life you tried really, 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 really hard to get along with? I mean, you made concessions all over the place. Boy, you were really doing everything you could to make it happen. And this person was just dog determined that they were not going to get along with you. You ever had someone like that in your life? No matter how hard you tried, that was just not going to work. Sometimes it's their fault. But usually, usually, when we don't get along with someone, it's usually a little bit our fault and a little bit their fault. How many can relate with what I'm saying? Things don't generally just fall apart because of one person. Usually there's blame to be laid. Not in every case, but usually there's blame to be laid at both people's feet. Someone once wisely said... Life is all about relationships. Hey, if you're going to take notes this morning, can you write that down across the top of your outline there this morning? Life is all about relationships. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what that is? Have a relationship with God. And then the second greatest commandment is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You show me someone who is relationally rich and financially poor, I'll show you someone who is very rich. You show me someone who is financially rich but relationally poor, and I'll show you someone who is very, very, very poor. Boy, I would rather have deep, rich relationships than money in the bank. No, I'd actually rather have both, but I'd... (laughs) 
if I had to pick, I'd say I'd rather have rich, deep relationships and money in the bank. Amen? Amen? What do you do when someone is just nasty your direction? You guys are, you guys are involved today. Someone said, someone, one person said love them. The other person in the crowd said be nasty back. <laughs> Thank you for preaching my uh, introduction for me, because that's where I'm going with this. What do you do when someone who uh, someone uh, what do you do with someone who regularly says unkind things about you? What do you do about someone who has venom in their spirit and they just spew it out extra strong your direction? Sometimes someone just locks eyes on you and just determines I'm going to make that person. I'm going to undermine their credibility. I'm going to attack them. I'm going to make their life miserable. And uh, as long as I'm around them, as long as I know them, as long as I have influence with their friends, I'm just going to make their life awful. What do you do with someone like that? What do you do with someone who's just determined to hurt you? You know, when I was growing up in the South, we had a term for someone like that. We'd say, they're being ugly. They're being ugly. How many ever heard that phrase before? They're being ugly. How many say, "I'm I'm a New Englander, I've never, ever heard they're being ugly, all right? Uh, that's not a phrase that's used much up here, but I can remember my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Martin, had this thick Mississippi accent. She'd look at me and say, you need to stop being ugly. You need to... St-. And I'd say, but I'm not ugly. My mom tells me I look good. And she'd say, you know what I mean. Stop being ugly. And uh, Miss Martin used to take the ping pong paddle and take me in the, in the restroom there off the kindergarten room and spank my little backside, and I deserved it. Uh, that was back when you could spank kids in school. Uh, but um, stop being ugly. What do you do when someone's just being ugly? Can I tell you that the first responder is generally the flesh? And what does the flesh want to do when someone is being ugly? Be ugly back. Be ugly back. Now, how does someone become our enemy? They become our enemy over time. Over time. It's usually not one big action committed against us, although at times it can be. Generally, it's a process. Now, watch this. Frustration, prolonged frustration, leads to anger. Brother Vara has been teaching about anger on Sunday morning. Some of you have been attending his class. This is why we have to deal with anger right away. We cannot let anger grip us. Because if we go to bed with anger, we've been put in an angry situation and we don't turn it over to the Lord, and we let it get a grip on our hearts, boy, we give place to the devil. And where does the devil take anger? He turns prolonged anger. Behind the pulpit here. Oh, there it is. But my batteries are about dead. Prolonged bitterness turns to hatred, and prolonged hatred turns into a wrathful lifestyle. You know, one analogy that's been used in the anger management class is that of a volcano. You know, a volcano on the outside can look very beautiful. 
It can be, there can be vegetation and uh, trees and plants and uh, uh, there can be uh, molten uh, uh, rock that has been left from an explosion years ago. But what is going on below a volcano is all of this lava, this hot lava that's just waiting to explode at any moment. And if you don't deal with, uh, w- with this in a way that's proper, when an enemy mistreats you, what's going to end up happening is you're going to be that volcano that could explode at any moment. And some of you, when an enemy mistreats you, you just spew lava all over. Because you're a walking volcano. you got it all together on the outside. But those that know you best are afraid that you're going to explode at any moment. Anger, bitterness, hatred, wrath are all fleshly responses that we offer to an enemy. You know, instead, Jesus commands us to do something radically opposite. He commands us to love our enemies. What does it mean to love our enemies? Does that mean to tolerate them? Does that mean to ignore them? Does that mean to just put up with them? Oh, no. Love goes on the offense. Love means to care for them. Show benevolence through service and sacrifice. Jesus has said that the mark of a true Christian is to love. Not only when it's easy but especially when it's hard. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 with me in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, and look at verse number 45. Again, we're looking at the teaching of Jesus right at the beginning of His ministry. Look at verse 45. It says, and again, verse 44 tells us that we're to love our enemies, pray for them that uh, persecute us and despitefully use us. Look at verse 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Watch this. Someone who is lost looks at you and sees you choosing to respond with love instead of hate, and they say, wow, that is not normal. That person must be a Christian. That is the identity of a Christian. Let's keep reading the verse. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? What's he saying here? Hey, it's easy to love someone who walks up to you and gives you a million dollars. Anybody knew that? You give me a million dollars, we're going to be good buddies. I guarantee you. We're going to be good buddies. Uh, hey, if, you, uh, if you're kind to me and you're kind to my family and you go out of your way to show benevolence and love and kindness to my family, hey, I, it's not hard to love someone who's loving on you and kind to you. Hey, but you know what? Lost people can do that. It takes a saved person to love someone who isn't being nice to them. Look at verse 47. And if ye salute your brethren only... What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans also? Hey, listen, anyone can be cordial to someone who's cordial to them. I find it funny that, and I've heard pastors use this example since I was a little kid. And now that I am a pastor, I understand why pastors use this example. You know, I've had people get upset with me because I didn't say hello to them at church. Oh, the pastor didn't say hi to me. You know, I promise you, if I didn't say hi to you one Sunday, it isn't because I don't love you. All right. I got a lot of people to try to say hello to and I and I want to do it. I want to do it. Uh, I would never intentionally give anyone here a cold shoulder. Never. My wife would never intentionally give anyone a cold shoulder. You know what true Christianity is? Learning to say hello to someone even when they ignore you. Learning to be cordial to someone even when they're not cordial back. And then look at verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect 
even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What a high bar. You know, that word perfect there does not mean without sin. If I were to take an athlete who is a runner and I were to put them at the end zone on a football field and I were to say, okay, I want you to run 100 yards in 10 seconds. How many of you here are good enough at math to divide 100 by 10 and figure out that it's one? All right. So that means that for every second on the clock, they need to run 10 yards. You all with me this morning? How many haven't had your coffee yet? So you're not able to track. All right. You with me? Okay, so let's say I'm standing at the 50-yard line, and I've got a stopwatch around my neck, and I've got the athlete there, and he's going to run 100 yards, and that field is marked every 10 yards, all right? And I uh, pull out the starting gun, and I shoot a blank in the air, and he takes off. And I look down at my stopwatch, and when he gets to the 10-yard line, it says 1. And then he gets to the 20-yard line, and it says Two. And he gets to the 30-yard line, it says three. By the time he gets to the 40-yard line, and it says four, you know what I'm going to say? Perfect. And then 55. Perfect. And then 66. Perfect. You know what that means? That means he's where, that means he's, he, he is where he's supposed to be when he's supposed to be there. You know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that he's sinless. You know what this verse means? It means be, Christian, be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Listen now, anybody can love somebody who gives to them, but can you love someone who's not nice to you? Be ye therefore mature, even as your father is mature. Hey, just as your father loves his enemies, you are to be mature and love your enemies. You know what I found in my own life oftentimes and what I see in a whole lot of Christians is we all have a whole bunch of growing up to do. whole bunch of growing up to do. Well, I don't like such and such because of this and I don't like such and such because of that. Be careful, be careful. Your immaturity is showing. Your immaturity is showing. Christian, God has called you to love your enemies. Jesus didn't just tell us to do it. He modeled it for us. All right, I'm going to ask you a question here. How many of you, when I say love your enemies, you have at least one person that comes to mind? Would you raise your hand? Let's be honest. All right, there's a face. There's a name. Hold your hands up. Hold them up. Hold them up. Hold them up. Okay, I want you to think about that person today while I'm preaching. Now, I know some of the situations in the room, and so let me just uh, uh, give this uh, disclaimer up front. There are times, there are times where bridges have been burned and need to stay burned. You understand? If that applies to you and you know it applies to you, then keep in context what I'm saying. You understand? If a bridge has been burned and needs to stay burned, leave it burned. But if a bridge has been burned and shouldn't be burned, then we have some repair to do. We have some repair to do. I propose that a true disciple of Christ learns how to deny the flesh as the first responder. He learns how to take up his cross and follow his master. Part of this calling is learning how to love those who are our enemy. If you do not love your enemy, then you have some growing up to do. Let's notice three thoughts about our pattern of love. 
uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as we consider this final sermon in our series, Christ Loved His Foes. If you received a bulletin on the way in, on the back of that bulletin is a fill-in-the-blake outline. I would encourage you to fill this out. I've heard people say, Pastor, I don't like filling out notes in church because it makes me feel like I'm in a classroom. And I understand that. Uh, let me just say this to you, okay? Um, if I were to take, someone gave me this analogy yesterday, I thought it was really good. If I were to take a piece of paper and fold it in half and then fold it in half again, fold it in half again and fold it in half again, so four times, Four folds. That is a representation of how our mind works. If I were to take Benjamin Franklin or Albert Einstein and I were to tell them something, all right, say they were in church this morning, within two hours they will have forgotten 50% of what they've heard. By the next day they will have forgotten another half of that, and by the next day another half of that, by the next day another half of that. That gets us down in the eight and a quarter range percentage of what we've heard. If you don't write things down, you will forget them. You understand that? The reason why I have you take notes in church is so that later, when you have forgotten, you can pull this out and be reminded. All right. If you say, I'm just not the type to take notes in church, I understand that. Let me encourage you to do this then. When you get home from church, take out a piece of paper and a pen and write down your takeaways from the message this morning. So you can at least go back and look at that. But I want you to take notes. I want you to remember so that you can be reminded. Otherwise, I promise you... You will forget. Someone right now stand up and tell me what I preached on a Sunday morning four weeks ago. It is amazing that no one can remember that I watched Little House on the Prairie. See, that's what some people get out of my preaching. All right. Let me encourage you to take notes this morning. If not, jot some things down when you get home today. All right, point number one. Let's jump in this morning. Number one, our assurance of enemies. Our assurance of enemies. You will notice that, uh, turn to John chapter 15 with me in your Bible. John chapter number 15 and verse number 18. John 15 and verse number 18. I guarantee you that if you live for Jesus, you're going to have enemies. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of Jesus. Look down at verse number 18. And the Bible says, I'll begin reading, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. What is Jesus saying in verses 18 and 19? He's saying, I've called you out of the world. You're to swim upstream from the culture. You're to be against the culture. And you know what? When you go against the culture, that creates friction. And when you create friction, you create enemies. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, the servant, speaking of us, is not greater than his Lord, speaking of Jesus. If they... The world have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. All right. Now, there is a seeming contradiction in Scripture that I want to clarify here. And so let me create a conflict and then give you the solution. Rather, point out a conflict. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says this. Love not the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All right? Love not the world. You know what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world. So which one is it? Are we to not love the world or are we to love the world? You see the, you know, the, the seeming contradiction here. Let me clarify this for you. When John told us in 1 John 2 not to love the world... What he was saying was not to love the systems and the sin of the world. 
This world is broken. Can we all agree on that this morning? There's a lot of sin in this world. We are not to love sin. When, G, when, when, when the Bible says, Jesus said in John 3, verse 16, when he said, For God so loved the world, he was not saying that God loves the sin of the world. Watch this. It was saying that God loves the sinners of the world. Did you know it is possible to love the sinner and hate the sin? That's what God's called us to do. Many, many Christians are enamored with sin. They're enamored with carnality. Many, many Christians turn on the TV and they're watching sitcoms and they're laughing at dirty jokes and innuendos and they're being entertained by worldly music. You know, um, when, the, when, the, um, when that which comes on TV glorifies sex, self, and sin, we shouldn't be watching it, Christian. We should be swimming against the culture. Now, why does the world hate us? I'm going to explain to you why right here. Because for the world, it is not enough for them to have you just love the sinner and hate the sin. They want you to love the sinner and the sin. And when Christians refuse to love sin, they are condemned. They are condemned. It is not enough for me to stand here and say that if someone identifies as a homosexual, that I love them but hate their sin. Oh, no. I must celebrate their sin. Or I am an intolerant person. Now, the world's going to throw all sorts of labels at us. You all with me this morning? The world's going to throw all kinds of labels at us. We are to continue to love the sinner and hate the sin. Love the sinner and hate the sin. And let the world label us. You know what they're going to do? They're going to call us names. They're going to persecute us. We will become their enemies. But the Bible tells us, and in 2 Timothy, it says, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Watch this now. If you live in this world and you don't have a single enemy in this world, your Christianity isn't right. You ought to have some enemy out there. Now, we're to live peaceably with all men to the best of our abilities. But please understand me that your position of righteousness by itself ought to be enough to have someone in this world not like you. If not, you need to get around a little bit more. Why? Because we're no better than Jesus. Jesus had enemies all over the place. Was Jesus mean? Was Jesus rude? Was Jesus unkind? Was Jesus nasty? Or as my kindergarten teacher would say, was Jesus ugly? No. Uh Uh-uh. He wasn't, but he had enemies anyway. Number one, our assurance of enemies. Listen, you can just expect that you're going to have enemies in this life. Number two, the attack of Christ's enemies. The attack of Christ's enemies. Letter A, notice, from without. From without. Now, we're going to advance and on the screen here. If you throw letter A up there for me, from without. Um, we're going to, uh, on the screen here, I'm going to give you three examples of the enemies of Christ. And just find a spot to jot these down in your notes. Turn over to Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 16. Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 16. And we're going to be flipping all throughout the four Gospels this morning. I believe Luke, uh, Mark is the only one uh, we won't um, uh, access today. But we'll be look, Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 2 
in verse number 16. Here we have the story of Jesus being born. And um, uh, within two years of being born, wise men came from the east to visit him. By the way, if you have a nativity scene and you have the wise men at the nativity scene, the wise men weren't there at the uh, birth of Jesus. They, they started their trip the day Jesus was born. They had a long trip. And so, um, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, whatever. I, I'm not uh, uh, preaching at you here. But just so historically you understand. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Here we find the wise men, they left and went home another way. And they did not go back and tell Herod where Jesus was because an angel had revealed to them in the dream in a dream that Herod was going to kill baby Jesus. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. And sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and all uh, uh, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. What a horrible, horrible thing! Herod had these babies murdered. You know who he was trying to kill? Jesus. Now, Jesus had an enemy and he couldn't even talk. You know why Jesus had an enemy? Because of what he, what he stood for and who he was. Watch, me, watch this now. Sometimes it's not about what we say. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are. When we identify with Christ, we are automatically the enemy of the world and the devil. By the very nature of who he was... He had enemies. Let's also notice the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Turn over to Luke chapter number 22. Luke chapter 22. Now, we, um, we looked a few weeks back at how Jesus loved his neighbor. And that may have been a month ago. I don't know when that was, but that may have been a month ago. Uh, but uh, we looked at when Jesus um, loved his neighbor. And he went through Capernaum. And he healed all kinds of people. He called Matthew, the, the tax collector, to follow him and all of these types of things. And what do we find all along the way as Jesus is ministering to people? We find the Pharisees nipping at his heels, nipping at his heels, criticizing him and complaining about him and finding fault in him. You know, it wasn't always that way for the Pharisees. In fact, in John chapter 3, when Jesus um, met with Nicodemus, listen to what Nicodemus said here. He said, we, the Pharisees, know that thou, Jesus, Art a man sent from God. The Pharisees started out in their heart of hearts knowing that Jesus was God. But you know what they did? They chose to reject him because they were phonies and he was real. And things got to a place where the jealousy grew so intense, they decided to kill him. I don't know who your enemy is today, but I doubt your enemies have done to you what the Pharisees did to Jesus. And so they by night arrest him, and they have a mock trial where they mock him, and the trial itself was a phony trial. Look at verse 63 of Luke 22. The Bible says, And the men that held Jesus mocked him. Put yourself in the room watching this happen. And smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. And as soon as it was day, 
the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying... Now, before I read verse 67, can I just pause and say, all night long, they didn't have a trial of Jesus. All night long, they tortured Jesus. They punched him in the face. They bloodied his nose and blackened his eyes. They put a blindfold on his face and played games with him, punching him, saying, prophesy, tell us who hit you. They pulled out his beard. They spit on him. This wasn't a trial. This was barbaric torture of an enemy. Now that morning has come and they've worked to wear him down. Look at verse 67. Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. I don't know who your Pharisees, or rather who your enemies are, but boy, the Pharisees were just brutal when it came to our Lord. We've seen Herod, we've seen the Pharisees. How about the Roman government? The Roman government. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27 and look at verse number 27. This week I had somebody say to me, they said, well, pastor, the Roman government was just doing their job. You know, the the guards that nailed Jesus to the cross and the guards that beat him, it wasn't personal. This is just what they did. This is who they were. And I I would say back to that, I get it. I get it. I understand that. I don't think they were doing this to Jesus because they hated him specifically. I, I think that this, this is what they did for a living. This is how they handled out the capital punishment of their day. But can I just say this? Anyone that would want to run nails through my hands and feet and beat my back and put a crown of thorns on my head, head uh, they're my enemy. Can we understand that? Can we agree on that this morning? Look at Matthew chapter, or rather, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 27, and look at verse 27, and we see the torture that they, uh, that they gave to Jesus. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him. That means they, they made him naked. And put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head. And a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him. And mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Can you see this happening? They're mocking him. He's got blood running down his face. He's got a robe on his back. He's been spit upon. Uh, He's been embarrassed. And now they're down on their hands and knees laughing, calling him King of the Jews. Verse 30, And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took off the robe from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Boy, down in verse number uh, 33 down through 35, we read how they drove the nails into his hands and his feet. We see how they gambled for his clothes at the base of the cross. The attacks of Christ's enemies. The attacks from without. Let's look at letter B. The attacks from within. 
the attacks from within. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus called 12 disciples to follow him. One of those men... One of those men, his name was Judas Iscariot. Judas was called to be a disciple of Christ. Called to be trained by Christ. Called to be prepared to go forth and reach the world after Jesus had ascended to heaven. Judas ate meals with Jesus. Judas lived with Jesus. Judas ministered right alongside with Jesus. Judas told people about Jesus, but Judas was A phony. Judas would be a traitor. Look at verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him. Unto them in the absence of the multitude. Really, Judas? For money? You're going to give up your master? This man who's poured all this into you? This man who's loved you? You're going to be a sellout for money? Look down at verse number 45. Here we find Jesus in the Garden of Eden. Or rather, the Garden of Gethsemane, excuse me. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's getting ready to be arrested. Look how it goes down. Verse 45, And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude... And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? The worst kind of attacks are ones that come from people who are supposed to be on your side. At age 14, he ran away from home and fought in the French and Indian War. At the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, he joined the American Army as a colonel. And in 1775, shared a command with Ethan Allen in the capture of Ticonderoga. Later, he led a thousand men into Canada where he fought in the Battle of Quebec. His courage in battle won him a promotion to Brigadier General. But something went wrong. Thoughts of compromise ate away at his patriotic zeal. Soon the unthinkable happened. He offered his services to the British and in 1780 devised a plan to surrender West Point to British control. Today, instead of being remembered as a national hero, Benedict Arnold is synonymous with traitor. Judas was a traitor. I expect the devil to attack me. I expect my flesh to tempt me. I expect lost, unsaved people to oppose me. But what hurts the most is when someone who's supposed to be on my side stabs me in the back. That hurts. What hurts the most is when someone who's supposed to be helping me fight the world, the flesh, and the devil turns around with their gun and friendly fire shoots at me. 
Have you ever had a loved one, someone close to you, betray your trust? Have you ever been stabbed in the back by someone who called you friend? Jesus knows what that's like. Because Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas sold out Jesus for 30 measly pieces of silver. The love of money is the root of all evil. Judas would end up taking that money bag and throwing it down at the feet of the Pharisees and wishing he hadn't done it. And that money would be called blood money. Blood money. Jesus knew what it was like to be attacked. He suffered attacks from without and he has suffered, suffered attacks from within. Number one, our assurance of enemies. Number two, the attack of Christ's enemies. Number three, notice, the affection Christ showed his enemies. The affection Christ showed his enemies. Love your enemies, Jesus said in Matthew 5.44. Hey, that wasn't just something that Jesus said. It was something Jesus lived. Letter A, notice, he served them. He served them. Turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Here we find Jesus in the upper room. It's the Last Supper. And they have uh, eaten their food. And uh, he knows that Judas is getting ready to go out and betray him. In fact, at supper time, he dipped the bread in the sop or uh, the gravy. And he gave it to Judas, signifying that Judas would be the one that would betray him. Make no mistake about it. Jesus knew that Judas was the one that betrayed him. What did Jesus do for Judas? Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now before... Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot. So Judas Iscariot is sitting there in the upper room with the disciples, demon-possessed. Uh, uh, Simon's son to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, Jesus, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. I want you to look at this through Judas's eyes. You've already made a deal with the devil to sell off the Savior. You're up there in the upper room with your 11 other friends and your master. And you're acting like you're still part of the crowd. Jesus at supper looks you in the eye and he hands you a piece of bread signifying that you are the one that's going to give him up. You know that Jesus knows and no one else in the room does. Jesus gets up after supper and he lays aside uh, 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 his garment and he wraps a towel around himself so that he can get down and do the job of a servant. You're Judas, you're sitting there and you look down and the one who knows that you're going to betray him is washing the dust off of your feet. Wow. I wonder in that moment if Jesus and Judas locked eyes. I wonder if Jesus didn't look up at Judas with eyes of love and say, Judas, I know what you're going to do, but I love you anyway. 
What do you do when you have an enemy that just hurts you? And that bridge needs to be rebuilt. Whether it's their fault or your fault or both parties' faults, you serve them. You serve them. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. A few years ago, we had a drama we did here for Easter. Brother John played the part of the servant of the high priest. Malchus, right? And it was a hypothetical about maybe how Malchus' life turned out and how he might have gotten saved. You know, Malchus was there the night that Jesus was arrested. He was the servant of the high priest who would condemn Jesus to die or send Jesus to be condemned to die. Jesus was there, or Malchus was there, and it was his duty to see that Jesus was arrested and brought back. Jesus is arrested, and uh, Peter, wanting to be bold, draws out his sword and just starts swinging that thing. It's amazing he didn't take someone's head off. He didn't take someone's head off, but he did take off Malchus's ear. You know, um, look at verse number 50 of Luke 22. And one of them, that's Peter, smote the servant of the high priest, that's Malchus. We know this from other accounts of the gospel. And cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. He's telling Peter, put your sword away. And he touched his ear and healed him. I wish I could have seen that. And Peter swinging that sword like a madman. He probably had spit, spittle coming down. I don't know. I, I don't know what was going on there. He's just winging that sword around, winging that thing around, and it takes off the ear of Malchus. Now imagine that. Your ear gets chopped off. And Jesus reaches down and picks the ear up off the ground and looks at Peter and says, Hey, knucklehead, put your sword away. That's in the Greek. You've got to look between the lines. And then he takes the ear and he just puts it back on. And Malchus is like, It's there. You know, if I was Jesus, you know what I'd have been tempted to say? Serves you right, buddy. That's what happens when you hang out with the wrong crowd. You deserve it. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He served Malchus. He made him whole. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 and 22 says this. It says, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For if for thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. You know, I've had some enemies in my life, and um, I've gone out of my way at times to serve them. And uh, whether I'm bringing them something to eat, or I'm giving them a gift card, or I'm you know, washing their car while they're not looking, or whatever it is, you know. Um, you know what ends up happening when you do kind things for people who just don't like you very much? It makes them really, really mad. <laughs> they don't like it. Because they want you to retaliate. And again, that's what your flesh wants to do. If you have an enemy, serve them. Let her be. Notice he prayed for them. He prayed for them. Luke chapter number 23. Turn there if you would. Luke chapter 23. We're almost done with the message this morning. Hang, t- hang tough with me here. And I have a really powerful point I'm going to make right at the end of the sermon. And so uh, stay engaged with me. Luke chapter 23, verse number 32. The Bible says, And there were also two other malefactors. These are people who deserve to die. Led with him to be put to death. 
And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the mouth actors, one on the right hand and the others on the left. Look at verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See how he's praying for these folks? And as he's praying this prayer, they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. Look at his actions while he's praying for them. Look at the actions of his enemies. And the rulers uh, also with uh, them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he be Christ, the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. All of the enemies of Jesus, except Judas maybe, were represented here at the cross. And what does Jesus do? He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What did he mean when he said forgive them? Was he talking about the Pharisees who were walking up and down, uh, wagging their heads, saying, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. Is that who Jesus was talking about when He said, Father, forgive them? Yes! Was He talking about the Roman guards who were casting lots at the base of the cross for His his garment? Was He talking about the Roman guards that drove the crown of thorns into His head, mocking Him? Was He talking about the Roman guards that nailed the inscription above His head, King of the Jews? Yes! Jesus was said, Father, forgive my enemies. Was he talking about the disciples that had went into hiding and had forgotten about him out of fear? Yes, Jesus prayed for his enemies. Let me ask you a question here. You raised your hand a minute ago and said, yes, pastor, when you mention enemy, there's someone that comes to mind. Okay, those of you that raised your hand, those of you that didn't raise your hand but thought of someone, let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you prayed for that person? I I don't mean pray against them. I mean pray for them. Not that God would send a lightning bolt out of heaven so you can attend their funeral and smirk. I mean you prayed for them. When was the last time you asked God to give them a good day and help them to come to the truth? Now again, I understand that some of you here have some bitter enemies that have done some very, very hurtful, very hurtful things, traumatizing things. Some of you have counseled with me and I have told you that for a season, it's best that you not even pray for them because that would cause you to be obsessed with that person. And it's just best for a while that you let those wounds heal. And if that's you, I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to those of you that have a bridge that need to be rebuilt. And by the way, if they're a brother or sister in the Lord, that bridge needs to be rebuilt. When was the last time you prayed for them? You know, Job had three quote-unquote friends who hurt him deeply. And at the very end of the book of Job, the very last chapter, the very last part of the chapter, the Bible says that Job prayed for his friends. And when he prayed for his friends, God gave him everything back. You have an enemy? One of the best things you could do is pray for them. You say, Pastor, I would serve them, but I can't. Pray for them. Letter C, notice, he died for them. He died for them. 
This is amazing. Look at verse number 44 of Luke chapter 23. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. This is amazing. You know, it was a sin to nail Jesus to the cross. It was a sin to mock Jesus while he was on the cross. It was a sin to push the thorns down into his skull. It was a sin to mock him. It was a sin uh, to belittle him. It was a sin to spit in his face and throw stones at him. It was a sin to do all these things. But the very acts that caused Jesus to die was the same act that uh, brought about the forgiveness of sin for the centurion. The centurion oversaw the crucifixion. He ordered the crown of thorns to be made. He ordered the crown of thorns to be drove into his skull. He ordered the nails to be put in his hands and his feet. He ordered him to be lifted between heaven and earth. And that very act that that Roman centurion ordered was a sin. But that very act is what saved him from that sin. Wow! That Roman centurion looked up at Jesus and he said, That is a righteous man. Did the centurion get saved right there? I believe he probably did. Jesus died for his enemies. He was willing to suffer for his enemies. He became proactive. They're jeering him and, 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 and poking at him and, and, and prodding him and taunting him and saying, Oh, if you really are the Christ, come down from the cross. Do you think that Jesus could have come down from the cross? Do you think for a moment, at least a small moment, he wasn't tempted to come down and say, Here I am. You know why he didn't do it? Because he was dying for the very ones jeering him and taunting him to do it. Wow. The affection Christ showed. Let's finish the sermon in Romans chapter 5. I have something really powerful I want to end the sermon on this morning. Who else is the enemy of God? Or was the enemy of God? I was the enemy of God. You... If you're not saved, you still are, by the way. If you are saved, you were the enemy of God. It was my sin that nailed him to the tree. It was your sin that put Jesus up there. Those nails represent every immoral deed all of us have done. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Look at verse 10. Here it is. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Jesus didn't just love His enemies, the Pharisees, by praying for them. 
Jesus didn't just love his enemies, the Roman guard, by dying for him. Jesus didn't just love his enemies, Judas, by serving him. Jesus loved me, his enemy, by becoming my sin. Jesus loved me, his enemy, by offering me his redemption from my sin. He offered me his pardon for my sin crimes. He offered me an adoption into his family. He offered me brotherhood to Jesus himself. And he's made me a joint heir with Christ to the throne in heaven. I was his enemy and he loved me enough to give me all of that. Christ loved me when my sin put him on that cross. Christ is the perfect example of how I am to love my enemy. Christian, who is it this morning that's adversarial to you? Do you love your enemy? Are you willing to follow Christ's pattern? Love your enemy the way that Christ loved his, the way that Christ loved you. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, help us to take a good, long, hard evaluation at whether or not we are responding in the flesh or by the Spirit of God when it comes to our enemies. Lord, we can't control the actions of those who are our enemies, but we can control our own. Help us to serve them. Help us to pray for them. And help us to be willing to suffer on their behalf. Oh, Lord God. Do a work in the hearts of your people this morning. I pray, God, someone's heart would be broken. They would make the choice to do what's right. Start down a new path of true biblical Christianity. In Jesus' name.